This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 193, The Eight Biggest Mistakes When You Bank on Yourself, with Jim Conrad. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. How can you mess up a bank on yourself type policy? That's the question I think is lingering in the backs of many people's minds when I speak with them one-on-one over the phone or over Zoom calls. It's a real and honest question. Anything can get messed up, screwed up if you handle it wrong. You know, I could mess up my microwave, even though it's so easy to cook, you know, a slice of pizza or whatever. I can mess that thing up if I throw in a bunch of aluminum foil. So if I don't know what I don't know, I need to be very careful to uh, handle the the tool I'm using properly, whether it's, you know, a a hammer and a nail, watch out thumbs, or a microwave, watch out aluminum foil, or a bank on yourself type policy. All three of those tools, hammers, microwaves, and bank on yourself tools, uh, are fairly easy to manage and enjoy. And it's pretty tough to mess those tools up. But There are some key mistakes, some ways you can screw this policy up. And I think knowing that in advance will help you make smart choices and just have a series of best practices available for you as you enter into the bank on yourself journey. Uh, So better to know that up front than to wish you'd known it in the future. That's going to be the content of our episode today with our returning guest, Jim Conrad. Now, I will introduce Jim Conrad, who is another bank on yourself professional in the open forum that we have. And and by the way, this is another one of our recurring series, what we call Office Hours Ask Me Anything, uh, where we bring on expert guests or myself, and we'll speak about any question you have, and we'll bring you on live to ask it. But here's the catch. You can't participate unless you're a part of our membership community. That's right, the Not Your Average Financial Community, which is open and free and available to all. Uh, If you go to nyafinancialpodcast.com, Find the show notes for today's episode and you can get right into our group, or you can go direct to our page at notyouraverage.mn.co. By the way, we are putting out content all the time on that site and discussions and online events are aplenty uh, and you're missing out if you're not a part of the group. We've got hundreds of people already on there and more are joining every single day. We want you to be the next one to join. So with that in mind, listen in to our private conversation on the eight biggest mistakes you make when you bank on yourself with Jim Conrad. Jim is just one of my best friends in the world from far away. And we share a lot in common, but he's, he's obviously, you know, a thousand miles ahead of me and understanding some of these strategies like bank on yourself, mainly because of his, his heart and his mind, uh, background in engineering. He's uh, Jim Conrad, the president of Conrad Financial Services. He resides uh, with his wife, Deb, in Concord, North Carolina. And Jim started working for his clients in financial services 22 years ago. Yes. Jim. Uh, 
after already finishing a 25 year career in management with a top fortune, top 10 company, uh, you grew up in Chicago. Maybe that's where we get our affinity, both being from this uh, yeah. area. Uh, and you hold a BS in chemical engineering from Purdue, which Purdue. I grew up um, just south of there in Indianapolis. So, um, and you got an MBA as well from Lewis University. Uh, Jim, everybody, Jim Conrad is a bank on yourself professional. He's been so for 15 years. That might put you in the original founding members category, Jim. Is that very right? Close. Or, okay. Very close to it. There are only a couple of them who have been with it longer. So your, I think your heart and also your mind as an engineer, chemical engineer has brought you to something you call the eight rules for bank on yourself. And you just take as long as you need to kind of give us a high level overview. Okay. But like Mark said, I've been doing this for quite a while and I found myself saying the same things to people over and over and over again. Uh, it became sort of like uh, just rules to live by if you're banking on yourself. And so I decided one day that I would actually write them down <laughs> instead of uh, just saying them as they popped up. And it turned out there were eight things that I kind of say all the time. And I put them in a particular order as well, because if you go through the order here, one through eight, they kind of build on each other. And some of them refer to others. So they kind of interlock. But let me just start from the top here. So no, rule number one is a bank on yourself type whole life policy gets better every year when you get your statement. Uh, it's going to be better than last year, guaranteed. In fact, every year is going to grow bigger than the year before, even if you pay the same premium. And the best part about it, Mark, is there's nothing you can do about that. So isn't that a shame? <laughs> Out of our control in a good way. That's right. So number two is there's no such thing as paying too much premium. And uh, that one is to say that uh, you should pay as much premium as you can, and, and there's no such thing as paying too much. And I prove that in something I call the dollar diagram. Now, I'm not going to go through the dollar diagram today unless somebody wants me to, because it takes me about 20 minutes to go through that. But um, I do have the dollar diagram video on my YouTube channel. So if you go to YouTube and look for Conrad Financial, uh, I've got a video of that dollar diagram, and it will prove to you there's no such thing as paying too much premium, not just not just um, intimate that, but prove it to you. So if a policy gets better every year and there's no such thing as paying too much premium, then, of course, number three is you want to pay as much premium as you can for as long as you can. And if you've got a policy that was issued within the past six, seven years, you know that when you get to year seven, uh, the company is going to take the average that you actually paid into your PUA rider, and that's going to become your new maximum for, from then on. So with these newer policies, it certainly pre, uh, behooves you to pay as much premium as you can in those first seven years. And then you should pay as much as you can for as long as you can. And, and you know, one of the things that people ask me particularly prospects is, hey, Jim, uh, when can I stop paying premium? Like paying premium is a burden. <laughs> and I say, well, 
you know, there's certain points in the policy life where you can stop paying premium, but why would you want to do that? You know, if you pay as much premium as you can for as long as you can, you're going to uh, end up being a lot wealthier than if you don't. So it's all a matter of, do you want to build wealth reliably or not? And if you do, then you want to pay as much premium as you can. Number four is always use your own capital. And I like to follow that up by saying, did I say always? Yes, I said always. And I mean always. And so that's the one that I get questions about, and I'll probably get them today. You know, <clears throat> why would I want to borrow from my policy when I can uh, go down the street to ABC Credit Union and get a better interest rate? Well, we'll deal with that one too, but you always want to use your own capital. And how do you get your own capital? Well, you fund your policy as in one, two, and three. And you only have to do that once. So once you capitalized your bank on yourself strategy to have enough capital to do what you want to do, whatever that is, if it's to finance new vehicles or uh, invest in real estate or take a nice vacation every year, whatever that goal is, once you get enough capital to do that, you only have to do it once and you just keep borrowing and paying it back over and over again. One of the corollaries from the dollar diagram, if you watch that diagram video, you'll see that I prove that there's no such thing as paying too much premium. And also, if you could turn a dollar of PUA premium into many dollars over your lifetime, and it depends on how many years you do that, but if you're a 45-year-old and you start putting money in your PUA rider, every dollar over your lifetime is going to grow to about $7. <clears throat> and if that's the case, if you know confidently that every dollar you put in is going to turn into $7 over your lifetime, number one, wouldn't you want to pay as much as you could? But number two, why would you want to save up money in somebody else's bank? Uh, you have to realize that if you save money in somebody else's bank, you are enriching the banker, not you. And you can't enrich both yourself and the bankers. So unless you want to make the bankers richer than they already are, and I don't know about the city where you live, but here in Charlotte, uh, the biggest building in Charlotte is the Bank of America building. It's got a beautiful atrium uh, foyer made out of marble and glass that probably cost $100 million. Where do you think they got $100 million to buy that atrium? Well, they got it from all you people paying interest and all you people saving up money in their bank so that they can then create more money and make even more interest. So you give a banker a dollar, he's going to make an awful lot of money off of that dollar. So don't do that. Don't save it up in somebody else's bank. Put it in your policy and become your own banker and uh, have your own capital. Okay, so number six has to do with policy loans. And, you know, policy loans are something that uh, takes a little experience. Uh, and, and that's why you have me and Mark as coaches. Uh, we can show you how to use your policy cash value to the greatest extent for the best purposes that you've got in mind. And then uh, the question always comes up, well, Jim, uh, you know, how much do I have to pay back on my loan? You know, because most people are used to making a payment on a mortgage or a car loan or a credit card where they tell you how much you got to pay. 
And if you don't pay that amount, they're going to take your car away. <laughs> they're going to take your house away or whatever. Uh, so I get those questions like, hey, how much do I have to pay back? And I tell them, well, that's up to you. You know, you're the one in charge of your cash value and how you manage that. So uh, people have a tendency to want to pay their loans back quickly because they figure it's a debt and they don't like debt. And I try to explain, of course, that your policy loan is good debt because it's your money that you're managing and you're using your own capital, number four. So yeah, you wanna pay your loans back in a reasonable amount of time. What's reasonable? Well, that depends on what you borrowed the money for. If you borrowed it to buy a new car, maybe eight to 10 years is reasonable. You borrowed it to take a nice vacation, maybe a year or two is reasonable. If you borrowed it to buy a new house, down payment, maybe 10, 15 years is reasonable. You decide what that is. But don't pay your loan back any faster than a reasonable amount of time because number seven, you wanna pay your premium first and your loan second. So you, you wanna favor paying premium back over paying loans back quickly. And then finally, number eight, which kind of uh, summarizes everything is if you bank on yourself, you can forget about interest rates and rate of return. And I always get questions about that one because most people are used to the way the world thinks. And if you bank on yourself, you think differently than the rest of the world, you have to. You need to start thinking differently. But the rest of the world still thinks that interest rates are really important and key in this whole thing. And, and they're always looking for the best rate of return. You know, they want to get the 10% uh, a year guaranteed by God, totally tax-free. You know, they think that exists. It doesn't exist, but they think it does. And if I don't tell them about it, I must be holding it back. But anyway, uh, there's a lot I could say about all these, as I did on our podcast, Mark. But... Uh, we're 15 minutes in, so I guess we should start taking questions. And by the way, guys, uh, if you stay to the end, I'm going to share a document, which um, Andrew Young reminded me uh, is available, Jim, that you and I have shared with others. You helped write a, uh, a document that summarizes these, writes it in about six, seven pages or so, so you guys can keep this in your files. Oh, yeah. If you have a bank on yourself document or a bank on yourself policy already and want a copy of this uh, document, it's um, eight keys to bank on yourself for maximum lifetime wealth and financial security. So stay to the end. We'll make sure we get that link out to everybody. Um, Sean Rose writes, what about using OPM? And he means, I assume he means other people's money to pay the premium. So Jim, this might include... Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this might include premium financing options. It's a great question. Sure. You had a lot. Come on, Sean. I was actually referring to rule number four. You, the, the, you know, you're saying always use your own capital. Well, but you didn't really address it from getting capital from other sources. So I wanted to get clarification. Yeah, so always use your own capital. What I'm talking about there is using your cash value in your policies to uh, borrow against to make purchases. So that's the capital I'm talking about. I think you're talking about using somebody else's money to fund your policy with premium. Is that what you meant? Correct. For example, I've seen opportunities to get like uh, 0% interest credit card for like 18 months. And um, I ran some projections and 
figured out that I could, I haven't done it yet, but I figured out that I could put the money back into, take the, that 0% credit card, say $10,000, buy, put it into premium, then take a loan back out against that and still be able to pay that credit card back fund the policy. It'd be, it would be like a paid up rider, um, not a continuing premium type situation. Sure. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is some kind of arbitrage where you're going to take uh, money at a low interest rate, put it in the policy as PUA rider premium, and then uh, take that growth, uh, which is going to be better than the 0% you're paying on the on the loan from whoever it might be. Um, I think that that can work if you have a lot of discipline to pay that credit card back before the time expires and they go to 20%, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm not going to say that I advocate that or that I think everybody should do that. I mean, there's there's certainly risk involved there. I, I believe in paying premium out of cash flow and from uh, actual savings. So that's the way I've always done it, and that's the way I advocate doing it. Um, I'm not going to say that some kind of credit interest rate arbitrage won't work, uh, but I'm not going to put that in my rules and I'm not going to advocate for that. I guess I, I should say this, Sean, uh, for the benefit of everybody, I wrote these rules to be timeless. Okay. I, I, I wrote them so that they will always work. It doesn't matter what, you know, the 10 year bond interest rate is or corporate bond interest rates are or whether you know bitcoin is a quarter million a coin or it doesn't matter what happens anywhere else these rules should always apply so you know i wanted them to be timeless i wanted them to apply uh, now and in the future so uh did i answer your question sean yeah you did and i i think you now that i understand your your intent and your perspective then Rule number four makes a lot more sense to me. Um, Excellent. Without, without necessarily shooting down my strategy. So. <laughs> yeah, but you did bring up a good point that I get a lot, and that is, hey, Jim, what if, uh, what if I got a policy and I've got cash value to borrow from, but uh, you know, XYZ Credit Union in my town is offering um, loans for one uh, percent. You know, shouldn't I go borrow that instead of borrowing from my policy where it's five percent? And my answer is no, you shouldn't go borrow from the credit union because even at 1%, you're going to enrich the credit union, right? And, and you know from, well, maybe you don't. Is everybody out there familiar with uh, how privatized banking works? I think you're going to want to give us a primer on that one, Jim. You're going to be a quick yeah. primer on that one? Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, uh, Federal Reserve member banks... <clears throat> and most of them are, you know, either directly or indirectly. Uh, they have a reserve requirement, which is about 10% or less. So that means that uh, they can lend out $10 for every dollar they have in their, uh, what is it called, reserve, in their reserve. So if you, if you borrow a dollar from the credit union or from a bank at 1%, and you pay that 1% interest, every dollar of that interest you pay them, they can then create $10 and go lend those out and charge 20% on a credit card interest rate. 
So you have to you have to think about who the characters are in this play. And this play is, you know, the financial system. And the bankers are characters in this play. And do you want to enrich the bankers or not? You know, it, you have a choice here. If you bank on yourself, you are going to cut yourself away from the banks. You're going to eliminate them from your life. So why would you want to eliminate bankers from your life and then go say, hey, I can get 1% over here. I'm going to go borrow from the bank this time. That doesn't make any sense. You're enriching the bankers. So even if it's 1%, here's another question, not just to you, Sean, but to everybody. If the bank is offering a cut rate on interest rates, a fire sale on interest rates, whatever that might be, say the prevailing rate is 5% and bank ABC over here will loan it to you at, at 2% or 3%. Do you think they're going to lose money on their interest rate? <laughs> Do you think a banker is going to lend you money and lose money on it? Of course not. So if they can offer you a loan for 1%, they're still making money. And they can make that money because they can compound it 10, 100 times and make tons of interest on that dollar you paid them. So you have to ask of, yourself, do you want to enrich the bankers or do you want to enrich yourself? Had a lot of folks recently get a PPP loan and also an EIDL loan, Jim. Uh, and you know those are all low interest. Unfortunately, profligate spending from on high, so to speak. Um, but uh, these are low or no interest loans. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the more I, I and, and I don't, uh, there may be some business owners on this call who've taken up those uh, opportunities to help infuse cash into their business. Um, how would you respond to the coronavirus and all of the um, stimulus spending and uh, the bank EIDL loans that have come out lately for businesses uh, for rule number four? Well, I would say that if you uh, need to borrow more capital than you've got in your policies, and uh, a PPP loan is a reasonable way to go, and the interest rate's low enough, and it looks like a good deal, and you can't borrow that much from your policy yet because you either just started it or you haven't capitalized it enough, then, you know, fine. I mean, if you need capital to a greater extent than you've got it, then yeah, you, you, you should probably look for the best deal you can get. But yep. no, when you get to the point right. where you've got your own capital to finance your business, then you need, to, you need to cut that cord. You need to just close that window. I don't care if it's the government or bank ABC or who it is. You're, you're speaking to a, a reality a lot of our clients experience, Jim, which is, I, I call it feathering the clutch which does not make sense if no one has, uh, if if someone has never driven a manual transmission. But um, you know, what, what, you don't overnight bank on yourself ninety nine percent of the time. Uh, over time, you can, but maybe it starts out by buying your, you know, your anniversary trip or whatever this first year. Or maybe it's a down payment on the next property before you get to self financing your own mortgage or whatever like that. Um, yeah. Great. So great conversation, Sean, as you can tell, it spurred some good uh, neurons firing uh, uh, in the conversations today, Sean. So great, great question. Someone's written a question here, a good, long, decent question. John, this is a question worth hearing on the call. Are you able to unmute yourself? Hey, Mark, you there? Oh, hey, John, I hear you great, man. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Good to hear your voice. Oh, you guys too. Uh, 
Uh, question about rule number three, obviously um, pay as much premium for as, as long as you can. The, the uh, uninter uninterrupted compound interest for, you know, 20, 30 years is obviously the, the power behind the vehicle. My question is if you're planning on doing that until the day you retire, if you have a W2 job and uh, let's say you're just planning on going to age 70 and then either your goal changes, your employability changes, uh, you decide to retire early, whatever. Um, at age 62, now you're um, going from a funding premium mindset to a, uh, uh, you know, using that cash value as part of your retirement plan. If you had another eight or whatever years of premium planned um, and you have that change, it, are these, is the policy easy to adapt to that? And, um, uh, you know, how much does that affect your uh, cash value available for um, retirement stuff since it's at the end of the uh, policy lifetime? Thanks. Good question. You can stop paying premium on a whole life policy pretty much any time you want to after the seventh year. Um, I advocate paying as long as you can. And, and that generally for most people means until you retire. And by retirement, I mean the point where you're not earning uh, income. You're, you're not out there working to earn income. You're living off your savings um, and so forth. So at the point where you're not earning income, you're probably not going to want to pay premium into your whole life policy. In fact, if you're going to take income from the policy, you don't want to take income and then pay back some of it as premium. That doesn't make any sense. Say that again, Jim. So say that last sentence again. Yes. Yeah, so uh, if you're using your whole life policy cash value to create income for life, and, and you can certainly do that, and, and we teach people how to do that, you're not going to want to take income from your policy and then take part of it and pay premium with it. That doesn't make any sense. So you want to stop paying premium out of your pocket at some point, and generally that's when you officially retire. You're not making, you're not earning income. And generally the way you want to do that is called premium offset. And your bank on yourself coach can, can show you how to do that and when to do that. But the only thing I will say about that point in time when you retire, other than stopping the premium coming out of your pocket, is that you want to pay your loans back. Uh, you want to have all your loan balances at zero on all your policies at the time that you retire and take income because that will maximize your lifetime income. So if you go into retirement with a policy loan balance, obviously that money's not available for you to generate income from, plus it's accumulating interest. So it's eroding your cash value at the same time you're trying to take income from it and that's not very wise. So you want to, you want to set up your plan so that you get all your policy loans paid back completely before you retire. Does that make sense? Thank you. Uh, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Good. It, you bring up a good point there, Jim. One of the kind of underlying, I don't know if rules is the right word, but at least best practices would be to, you know, borrow and pay back, borrow and pay back as you please for major expenses throughout your working years with the intent or the goal uh, of paying down as much of the loan as possible before you hit retirement. 
Is that a fair way to, is that kind of a best yeah, practice that's, you might say? That's what I was saying. Yes. Yep. Yep. Good. Love it. Great question, John. Great question. Um, I have a question here from someone who wrote me uh, about this in anticipation of our call today. He writes, Hey, I was just thinking about our situation here in Utah. Housing prices are ballooning due to artificially low interest rates. Does it make sense to try and wait to buy a home and buy a point? So he's asking about a mortgage point, Jim, uh, to lower the interest rate in the future if housing prices drop. Uh, should someone ever lower their interest rate by buying points? When And when might someone want to do that? So again, his question related to these eight rules uh, are why and under what circumstances would it make sense to buy points on your mortgage to lower the rate? Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, and you probably have a better answer than I do because I'm, I'm not much of a mortgage guy, but uh, certainly if you have capital in your policies, you've built up cash value, uh, you could take a policy loan to buy, you know, to pay down your points on your mortgage. And, and the biggest question would, of course, be, how long do you intend to stay in that house? So, you know, if you're planning to stay in the house as long as till you retire and beyond, you have no idea of moving, then you might want to pay those points down because you, you might have that mortgage for a while. But my experience, even in my own lifetime, and I started, I started paying back mortgages back in 1978. So I've been, I did it for a long time. Uh, very few people keep mortgages for the full 30 years. You know, they either move or they refinance. I mean, uh, the refinancing for the last 15 years has been ridiculous. You know, people are refinancing every three, five years. So to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy down points if you're going to be moving and refinancing and so forth. But I would say in any case, if you're going to buy down points, you should borrow the money from your policy to do that. Number four, use your own capital. Right. Great stuff. You know, I was talking a few minutes ago about privatized banking. So there's a book out there, and I don't think you can get it anymore. I think it's out of print. But it's called How Privatized Banking Really Works from a couple of Austrian econo economists, uh, Carlos Lehrer and Robert Murphy. And on page 154, there's this little... Uh, diagram here that explains what I was talking about. In a word, uh, if, you, if you deposit or you borrow a dollar from a bank and pay them interest, uh, the bank can multiply that by a factor of 10. So in this example, they're talking about um, somebody takes, uh, somebody buys bonds from the Fed, uh, you know, a million dollars worth of bonds, and then they deposit that check in the bank, the bank can then uh, increase the money that they've got outstanding uh, by $10 million. The, the money supply in the country expands by 10 million or 10 times the amount of the deposit. So another way to look at that is if you, if you pay a dollar of interest to somebody else, some other bank, uh, you're going to create a lot of money in the economy that the, the bankers are then going to charge interest on. And a lot of them, since banks can do all kinds of things now, like issue credit cards, uh, that dollar that you give them might end up <clears throat> costing somebody 20% interest on their credit card. And so you're going to enrich the bankers by giving them money. 
So my answer is always going to be use your own capital and quit giving bankers money. It's kind of an ethical conversation in some ways there, Jim, you know? Yes, sir. Um, wow. Never thought of it that way. So if you can pick well, up this book, uh, I would encourage you to read it, Fractional Reserve Banking. I think there's even some math related to banks make more money when interest rates go down, uh, in part because of the volume of loans that they're offering. You know, when they're offering even low interest rate loans and they're able to increase the volume of debt because more people are getting loans, again, it's free money to the bank. It's not like how much skin in the game does the bank have, Jim? You know, when you give them a million bucks and they loan out 10 million or whatever the number is. Um, exactly. Very little of their own money involved there. You know, they're using other people's deposits. Yeah, and back in 2008, the, the reserve requirement was down in numbers like 2-3%, which meant you, it, it wasn't a factor of 10 to 1 anymore. It was 20 to 1 or 50 to 1. And that, when that all unraveled, that's why we had the banking crisis. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's just the point I'm trying to make is, you know, build up and use your own capital. If you enrich the bankers, you're going to help fund the next bank building in whatever city you live in. Why would you want to do that? Jim, I get a lot of people asking me about number seven and number eight. So yes. favor paying premium over paying back loans quickly. Someone tells me, like today, had a guy had wiggle room in his policy to add paid up additions, uh, which folks, that's the, that's the part of the policy that builds your cash value and death benefit in a very efficient way, especially in the early years. Uh, it builds dividends, et cetera. But he also, Jim, he had a policy loan as well. And he was trying to decide, should I pay off my loan? Back to rule number six, pay off loans in a reasonable period of time. Or should I pump money into my paid up additions rider, which uh, maybe is closer to rule number five or, and rule number two? Um, you know, pay, <laughs> never save up money in somebody else's bank and there's no such thing as paying too much premium. So he felt like, you know, if he was looking at this list, he might have kind of a existential crisis. Well, I've, <laughs> hey, I've got whatever, I've got $45,000. I've got a loan to pay off and I've got some room in my paid up additions. Where do I put that money? Jim, what, what would you say? I'd have to look at his case. You know, everybody's case is different. Yep. Uh, when my clients come to me with that kind of situation and, and they do, and I encourage them to do that, you know, uh, that's what I'm here for to help them. Uh, I'm their bank on yourself coach. You know, I'm going to look at everything, you know, how much wiggle room, as you call it, Mark, do they have? Uh, what's their cash flow? How much of it are they spending on loan repayment versus premium? And of course, if you have no more wiggle room, uh, you can start a new policy, which would be the best thing to do. But a lot of things come into that recommendation. The age of the client, you know, is he 55 or 35? How close are you to retirement? Is this, is this cash flow you're going to have every month from now on? Or is this a one-time uh, windfall that you want to put somewhere? You know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of variables in this equation and what I'm trying to do in the rules is, is sort of give you a, a playbook to go by. But of course, there are going to be some situations where it kind of overlaps. Paying back your loan a reasonable amount of time overlaps with paying as much premium as you can. You know, you should never 
buy something that you can't afford to pay back with a policy loan in a reasonable amount of time. Does that make sense, Mark? Uh, it makes sense, but I'm disappointed that I can't just uh, spend like a drunken sailor, Jim. Uh, I <laughs> well, you can. The, that's what this is all about. Uh, no. <laughs> you can, but if you've got $100,000 of cash value and you've borrowed out $90,000, you got a problem. Right. Because mm-hmm. what happens the next time you have an emergency? Yep. You're going to go I've back also... to the bankers again, aren't you? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Back to... Yeah, that's right. You're going to be right. holding to those bankers again. So there's some timing there as well. But that, you know, that's a fine point. Todd writes, our goal is to be our own bank. Is there a strategy to completely replace banks? Uh, for example, paycheck deposits not into a bank and also pay standard bills without a bank checking account. Jim, what do you think? Is, mm. there, is there a strategy to completely replace banks? Well, as, uh, as one of my heroes, Nelson Nash, would say, uh, you always want to do the banking at the me and you level, which means you always want to be your own banker. You want to bank on yourself. The, the, the practicality of it comes in in that a life insurance policy is not set up uh, to work like a bank account. You know, you don't have an ATM machine. You can't write checks. Thank goodness, um, right? Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I mean, look, at, look at the interest rate on those checking accounts, for, for example, right? Yeah, so uh, we're a long way from having a bank on yourself type policy become a checking account. I don't know that we ever want that to happen. But, you know, if you're doing things right, you should have no more money in a checking account at a bank than you need, you know, to write checks every month and, and pay your bills. So, Todd, the thing to do is uh, talk to your friends and neighbors and get them to bank on themselves. The more people we can get doing this, the less we need the Fed and banks and so forth. So true. Uh, I've never met someone who understands this concept better. Jim's uh, my secret hero. I've got, if I had action figures for bank on yourself professionals, (laughs) he'd be my action figure. (laughs) That's better Um, than a bobblehead. That's right. (laughs) So, um, Jim, there's so much more here. I mean, man, we could keep going on these eight rules, but thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your wisdom here with us. And thank you everybody who joined. Keep up the revolution. We'll see you guys next month on, on this office hours and throughout the month on the membership site. Good to be with everybody today. So long. A ton of great content there today. Thank you, Jim, again. And thank you all of our participants for bringing your best questions. It's better when you're there. So once again, guys, go to notyouraverage.mn.co to join our membership site and be a part of the very next live event, the next Office Hours event, which we're holding monthly. And uh, would love to have you ask the next question and find your answers. So thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.